Welcome to the Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome back to another episode of the Athletics of Business podcast. I am your host and CEO of the Molitor Group, Ed Molitor. Now, on episode 102, we welcome Scott O'Neill, CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. And I did not think that it would be possible, even feasible, to top that conversation. But we immediately started talking about having an encore interview because we enjoyed our time together so much and felt like there's a lot of things we still wanted to talk about. We threw some dates out there, but then life happens, right? And things get in the way, things pop up in his world, things popped up in my world, and thought we had a date settled towards the end of June, a little bit after the release of his new book be where your feet are, which we talk quite a bit about in this episode. But then on June 30th, Scott says, announced that he was stepping down as CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. He stated that he stepped down because it was time. And we're going to dive into that. I mean, we'll talk all about what went into Scott's decision. There's so many great things in this conversation. I didn't even think that it was possible, like I said, to top that conversation. Well, this episode, this episode is an absolute masterclass in the power of self-awareness what it takes to be a change agent, the power of surrounding yourself with incredible people and building extraordinary culture and the joy that comes from developing future leaders. And Scott peels back the curtain and and talks about a recent trip that he took with his daughter to Mozambique to help build schools and and some of the powerful and extraordinary experiences that they share together. Um, And we jump into, as I mentioned, his book, Be Where Your Feet Are, The Seven Principles to Keep You Present, Grounded, and thriving. And that talks about, as you can imagine, being present and focused in everything you do. And there's a very significant life event that was a catalyst behind this book. And as a matter of fact, Scott shares a very personal story about the writing that took place and how that evolved into this great book. And I love how Scott describes the book. He says, the book is not a pat yourself on the back, victory lap, Lego guy, everything is awesome. It's the opposite of that, Scott said. And he goes on to say, it's essentially like a vulnerable peak behind the curtain, look at life. And life can be messy. And I'm kind of okay with messy. This book is about purposeful living. So is this podcast episode. It is phenomenal. There's so much here. There's so much content. So I'm going to get out of your way and let you enjoy this conversation with Scott O'Neill. Scott, thank you so much for joining us again today on the Athletics of Business podcast. I'm fired up to have you here. A lot has changed since we recorded our first episode on November 11th of 2020. Yes, he sure has. <laughs> um, and that, that might be the understatement of the day, by the way. That, that no, might be- it might. I, I, I'll say, um, well, as we sit here in you know, the mid to late summer, you know, I've stepped down from my position as uh, CEO of HBSC, which I'm happy to love to talk about. I just got back from a, a three-week trip helping to build a school in Mozambique. I, you know, I'm in a, an incredible state. I feel happy and free and at peace. And, excited about exploring what's next, connecting with, with people I haven't connected with in quite some time and having time, like time has been my most precious commodity over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. And for the first time in a long time, I have a lot of it. Has that been odd for you? And I don't want to say a challenge because I'm, I, I, I'm guessing knowing you like I do that you're embracing it, but has that been a little bit odd having so much time? You know, uh, if you ask me this in three weeks, the answer would be very different. Right now, I haven't had a second to breathe. I literally landed from Mozambique and was kind of whisked off to a 
youth conference for my church that I was helping to uh, to plan and lead. And then I got back in for a day and then we went to a family reunion for four days up in uh, Mohan, up, upstate New York. And then I came back. I'll be here for three days. And then um, I have a, another camp for, for young men in our church. So, so I, awesome. I think in three weeks, I will uh, have a breath and have some time. Right. And, and I think it'll be very different. In, in the meantime, I've been <laughs> scrambling uh, for the last <laughs> five weeks. But yeah, no, it's fascinating. Even today, I have two calls today. I haven't had only two calls, including Saturdays and Sundays in 12 years. So it's nice. That part is nice. I have all my girls home uh, the last few days, which has been really cool. So it's different for sure. It's different. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And one thing, you know, we have to mention too, because I want to talk about here as the conversation evolves is congratulations on the phenomenal book and the success. And oh, I want to, th- I want to thank you for the book. I mean, be where your feet are. It's an amazing book and we'll get into what inspired you to write the book, but I've shared the book with somebody and like physically shared the book. And I did a, a seven week presentation with the financial group. And I talked about your book a bit. Um, and that's you. another understatement today. And I put, I shared the link with them, right? And I was able to monitor like how many folks actually jumped on the Amazon link and bought it. And then the feedback I received was mine. It was, it was oh, awesome. That's awesome. But congratulations on that. Thank you. That's been, it's been a humbling journey. I mean, I, um, I didn't have any interest in writing a book, quite frankly. And uh, my best friend took his own life, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. And, um, and I spiraled into like depression. A lot, a lot of what people are feeling now, like, I think mine was a little more severe than the mental health issues. I think young people are, are facing all over the country. But for me, I had trouble sleeping at night. I had trouble getting out of bed in the morning and burst into tears, walking out of a meeting. Uh, somebody would say something to trigger a memory. And I started to write to heal, which sounds really strange, but I just like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, but you remember when Forrest was running? Absolutely. That was me writing. You know, I was just like writing. Some of it was just nonsense. Like I just, yeah. you know, um, but others were just these, these stories, um, some of which you see in the book. And, uh, and that, that just became a healing. And then a good friend of mine who co-authored the book, Randall Wright, came to visit. He's a good friend of mine, a closer friend of my wife, but a friend of mine. And um, he said, you need to publish this. And I was like, no, nah. like, this is kind of my own journey. Like, this is about some of my struggles and failures. And he's like, man, could you imagine? He's like, you talk about wanting to help people. You talk about wanting to develop leaders. He's like, go put something out in the universe that's vulnerable. And, mm-hmm. and you, it talks about failure and overcoming failure. I said, he said, that's what the world needs. And I was like, nah, that's not really me. <clears throat> and so uh, six months later, I had an agent and they sold the book to St. Martin's Press and, and uh, voila. So, so you literally did write the book to heal. There was no intention of you putting that no. into the hands of the public. That's right. amazing. Yeah, that no, was pretty wild. And then the ultimate expression of ego is, is writing a book. You know, I mean, that's, you know, like I have something to say that people have to listen to. So you have to get over that part. Uh, and the second thing you have to get over is like being talent, which is so strange. I mean, you're talent, you, you know, a podcaster, but like, I don't know. It's just, I managed talent for a living. I never was talent. That was like, you know, you put yourself out there and people are like, this is not good enough. I don't want to represent you. You're like, wait, what? You know? <laughs> And I'm telling me, Mike, saying, hey, this isn't good enough, you know, especially I mean, after all you had been through to write the book, right? You're, you're telling like, me that no, my stories no aren't going to buy this. I'm like, no, somebody's going to buy this, you know? Yeah. And so I went through some of that, but, but uh, I, I will say, um, sometimes it's nice when you hear from your mom and she says, oh, you're awesome. And you're smart. And you're funny. And I love the book. And that, that's great. You know, but when you hear from perfect strangers, this is humbling. You know, I guy reach out and you know, reach out on LinkedIn just say, Hey, I want to be a better father. I want to be a better man. I want to be a better Mm-hmm. better uh, husband. You know, I was like, huh. another one, like, Hey, I was driving to Montana. I cried for three hours listening to your audio book. Oh. So there's some of those things that come in they come in relatively regularly of strangers. And, you know, I, I loved the notion of having something for my kids and my friends, but I, I've been humbled by, by the impact. 
Yeah, that is so cool. You know, you talk about you want something for your kids and, and my good friend Porter Moser, when his book came out, we were talking. I said, what's been the coolest part about it? He said, the coolest part about it is my daughter Jordan's with the women's basketball team on a road trip. And she calls me. She says, dad, I'm on page 72. And the story's amazing. I just want you to know he made my day. Oh. Like, yeah, like stuff like that. I mean, it's so like I have goosebumps. That's just, that's great yeah. stuff. That is, that is really great stuff. Now, the audio book, did you do, you did the audio book yourself, right? I read I it. Did. I did. How, how was that? Was that reading your own words? Was that? Yeah. No, I, I haven't listened to it. I don't know if you're like I am, but like, it's hard to listen to yourself. Like, absolutely. You know, you do an interview on TV. I never want to see it. Yeah. You know, if it's in print, I can read it and almost hear my own voice. But the audio book for me, I mean, I broke down a few times doing, you know, reading some of the stories, um, which, which apparently they captured pretty well, either really well or really not so well. But we'll go, uh, we'll but, go with really well. Yeah, yeah. But I've gotten some, some good feedback on the audio book. But for me, that it's amazing. It's like, I mean, it's a production. I mean, you're, you're not probably, I think it's like six or eight hours long. And I probably spent, I don't know, 14 hours in the studio or makeshift studios, COVID. So it's makeshift studio, but, right. but it was pretty amazing. And it, and you get the producer in your ear, read that again, read that again. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, through it, I'm like, I know, read it again. You know, it's kind of fun. So, Did you uh, find but, yourself getting caught back up in the stories, not just emotionally, yeah. but like all of a sudden you realize like your energy's rising. So you're reading faster. You're supposed to be reading at a certain cadence. Did you have that challenge a little bit? Yeah, no, I did. I look, I, I'm very emotional, I'm very passionate. And you are too. And so, you know, this is my life. And you know, you're talking about your life. So I am like, in some ways, reading it as if I'm reading it for the first time almost, you know, it was, uh, it was a pretty special experience. I, I imagine I'll listen to it at some point, but, uh, but not, not yet. Yeah. You know, speaking of emotional, walking away from HBSC, because when we first talked, we had such a, a rich conversation around what it was like to build that organization off the platform of starting with the 76ers, right? And the incredible young talent that you brought on and the ownership and, and the relationships that you had, how hard was that process and that final decision to walk away from what you built? Well, the, the end was kind of the easy part because we've been talking about it since January. You know, I've been working with Josh and David and Michael Rubin to try to find a replacement. We found an incredible guy in Tad Brown um, who stepped in and will do an amazing job in taking the company to the next level. He's wonderful with people. He's smart. He's talented. He's, he's interested. He's interesting. Um, he understands big business. He understands team business. So he'll be he'll be great. Uh, for me, I'm a builder. I want to grow. I mean, we we took this grew this business over two billion dollars in value in eight years. Built it from a little tiny mom and pop team to a global sports and entertainment enterprise. And I want to do that again. And, and this business is big and it's almost a $3 billion business now. So mm -hmm. I think in terms of, of growth for me, uh, that's what I, I'm a change agent. I'm a, I'm a grower of businesses and this is a big business and doesn't need much change. It's a really high functioning, mm -hmm. incredible business. Culture is amazing. The people are great, but I'm, I'm not a great maintenance manager. I, I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm about. It's not what gets me popping out of bed in the morning. I like change. I like action and I like growth. Well, and it's interesting because I believe the average lifespan of a CEO is six years. You're there for eight years. And you talk about being a two team. bonus years. How about it? I mean, two bonus years. You talk about that. You talk about seeing it through, right? And getting <laughs> through the process, all that stuff. You don't want to manage it. But at what point in your career did you realize that? Because that's sometimes folks, and you see it in different industries, right? And you see it, you know, my old industry in college coaching, you see folks that stay too long. 
And it's not, an, yeah. it's, it's not a slam on them. It's just knowing what you are and what you're really, really good at, what you're passionate <laughs> about. How did you figure that out? Yeah. Well, I mean, we grinded through it. I will tell you, I've known for some time, like what I'm meant to do, what I'm on this earth for and asked to, I hope to develop the next generation of leaders. And I think I had a fair share of that at HBSC. Um, the thought of building another platform and getting to do that again is pretty exciting. So I, I will tell you, I loved my time. I love the people I work with. I love what we built. I love the guys I work for. Most people don't get the blessings like I've had in careers. I mean, I've worked for the NBA, David Stern. I worked for Madison Square Garden, the biggest mm-hmm. brand in the sports and entertainment. And now to be able to build one, that's one of the biggest brands in sports entertainment is pretty amazing. I'm not quite, quite ready um, and I don't quite know what I'm going to do next. I know I'm going to build something. I know it's going to be big. Uh, and I know I'm going to attract the best talent in the world uh, to have, go have some fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Can I read a quote that I read of yours um, when I was getting ready uh, for this podcast? Yeah. No, this, is, this was good because it really kind of, it puts it all in a nutshell, right? HBSC is the best organization I've ever been a part of with the highest degree of difficulty I've ever encountered, which I want to talk about that, by the way. And the most fun I've ever had because every day brought a new opportunity to learn and develop. This company has grown through a culture of extraordinary teammates willing to be innovative, having the discipline to do the work and the courage to lead from the front. While I thoroughly enjoyed every moment of my time here, I am even more excited to build, grow, and drive my next platform. I mean, I just think that's so powerful. Yeah, that, I mean, I guess, yeah, that, that says it in a nutshell, for sure. I mean, um, it, it, really, it really But the is. challenge, oh man, I don't know. I'm not a guy who looks back very often, whether that's, you know, that's a strength and a curse. And I, I don't do a great job of reflecting and celebrating, but um, I tend to, to be in the present and forward. But what I'll always cherish is the culture we built and the people there. I mean, the friendships and the relationships um, and the laughs and the tears and the struggle and the grind, you know, and coming together as this incredible team to do incredible things. Yeah. And uh, we used to say all the time, like, very good isn't good enough. And I love that very good isn't good enough. Like I love the notion of like pushing the edge and pushing the limit and pushing people. So I I think, boy, what a gift. I love the fact that's how you view it, right? You're so humble. But let me ask you this. When you first started to articulate your vision for the culture and the state that that organization was in when you got there, did people look at you like you had 10 holes in your head? Yes. Yeah. And I might. I might have (laughs) Or maybe only nine. Can you talk about that a little bit? How important and how significant it was to you to speak to the culture, right? And constantly, constantly, constantly talk about it. And when everything really started to click. And, you know, there are, there are only 12 people there that were there when I started. Insane. This notion of culture is soft is not what I'm about. You know, I'm about a culture of accountability. But I do believe that with incredible people and an extraordinary culture, there's nothing you can't accomplish. And so, yes, did I... <laughs> There's somewhat infamous stories about my first uh, month there. Um, but one is we just, I took everybody on a tour and I just had them write, just write down what you see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the exercise, just write, write down what you see. And we came back and, you know, their boxes stacked up and chip paint, pictures on the wall are crooked, Coke machine there, we're Pepsi building. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's like all this crap. You know, I came in the next day and I said, hey, if that Coke machine's not gone by noon, one of you won't be here. And so when I, I wrote that in the book and my editor, and my, the woman who helped me write, Michelle Bender, was amazing. They're both like, hey, you sound kind of like a jerk. I was like, hey, guess what? This is a change situation. Right. Like, this is not for the faint of heart. Like, this isn't like, come in, like, let's go sit in a, a circle and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. I mean, we're trying to change the world. We're trying to make an impact. 
city of Philadelphia at the time eventually became bigger, bigger circle. But we're, we're, we're trying to build a world-class organization. We're trying to be like the creme de la creme of this league. And right now we're 28, 29, and 30 in every KPI we have. We practice in a, in a college and share the gym with a bunch of students. We have one court. Our locker room seats 12 people. I was like, guys, maybe, yeah, was I hardcore? Yes, I was. Did I have higher expectations than what I found there? Yes, I did. Did it take a while? Yes. Did new people help? Yes. Did I hire people that I loved and trusted and knew because I knew that they knew what a culture of excellence looked like? I did. Was that hard? Yes, it was. I come strong. You know, I have a strong personality. Um, I have a strong will. Now, listen, when, when you hire people and the culture becomes, the expectations of the culture become higher than your expectations, then as a leader, you can step back. Right. That's the nice part. It's like when the people you bring in are like raising the bar above what you thought was possible, you're like, Hey, you know, let me know how that goes. <laughs> um, and they became the great drivers of talent and culture. I mean, Hugh Weber, who, who uh, you know, he was with the Pelicans, who's the, the Hornets at the time in New Orleans. They were a revenue payer, revenue share payer. I mean, they were a top 10 revenue team in the league. This guy's running one of the organizations here. Mm-hmm. Like Jake Reynolds, who I'm related to. I, you know how hard it is to, to work with someone you're related to? Mm-hmm. And that guy changed the culture of the organization by himself as a, I think we hired like 26, 27 who came in. Changed the culture of the organization. Chris Heck, Laura Price. Laura Price was there. She's one of the 12. So you know what they say? Um, there's no one stronger than the converted. You know, meaning she was there and she was all in all the time. Susan Williams, an, an amazing force for good who I worked with at the NBA or at Madison Square Garden. Donna Daniels, who runs our building now, the GM, um, incredible general manager uh, I worked with at the NBA at the NBA. So like you have these people with Chris Heck, um, who I worked with twice before now it's president of the Sixers. Like, so you start to get these pieces of people who have seen it, done it, been it, have high expectations, understand the gear it takes to be excellent at your craft, understand what it takes to be world-class, won't tolerate mediocrity, if you will. Yeah. And I want to go back to that. Won't tolerate mediocrity. And I come strong. How much of a difference maker is it for you that you know you're doing things the right way? Because everything you do is based on your core values, right? Your, what you stand for. How much yeah. role did that play in your success with this organization? I don't know. I mean, I mean the, the one skill set I have is to hire great people. Like, that's my skill set. I, I hope people would argue that I help them develop and grow uh, because that's what uh, I'm passionate about. And then getting them to work together. So that, that's what I do. Do I always do the right thing? I don't. Do I always say the right thing? No, I don't. Am I sometimes come on too strong? Yes, I do. My intentions are always pure. And, and people that know me the best will tell you that his intentions are as pure as gold. And they'll also say, people that know me really well will say, he's really, really humble. People that don't know me well said, man, that guy's overconfident. Or they have other more choice words. But, but those that spend a lot of time with me know that I love them. Like, I love the people I work with. And, and I know people don't like to use that word at, at or aren't comfortable using that word in a work setting. I am. Like, I, I love the people yeah. I work with. Love them. I don't always like them, by the way, but I always love them. Then that's what matters, right? Yeah. It's just like, just like your family, right? Sometimes. But I, and let me reword that question, though, like with values, because you're, you're in a world that's that moving so fast. And you're inside building this culture and the business side of it. And yet, Philly's a tough city. Let's take Philly for an example, right? It's a, it's a tough city and the fan base can be brutal. Sports radio can be brutal. You had this absolute conviction. You didn't do what was comfortable or convenient. You had this conviction. Did that go back to knowing who you were, what you stand for, and the fact that you operate yes. out of love with your people? That's where, yeah. And that, that had to help your decision-making and how fast and quick and, and you made those decisions. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I'm really comfortable in my own skin. I really am. I, I haven't since I was a young kid. I know when I offend someone, I know when I say the wrong thing, I know when I do the wrong thing. I'm very self-aware. And that's really hard. It's hard to be that self-aware. I wish I were oblivious. And we've had some leaders of this country recently that have been oblivious and not very self-aware. And that's kind of a gift. You know, it's a curse and a gift. Uh, being so self-aware and, and kind of wearing that and, and owning it at night. Man, I just wish I would handle that better. And then as I got older, being okay, just picking up the phone and say, hey, Don, I shouldn't have said that to you today too. Mm. I just want to say, you know, accept my apology. So that kind of growth helps as you get a little older and a little more mature. I do. I'm, I'm very values-based. People know what I stand for. They know who I am. Some of my closest confidants were my biggest opponents and biggest debaters, which I love. You know, I don't have a lot of, ro- I've never had a lot of robots around me. They don't make it too long. The strong, the tough, uh, the confident, the willing to take me on, willing to walk in my room, walk in my office and say, Scott, like you are off base. I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. I mean, I like to argue. I like to fight. I like to debate. Uh, but oftentimes, almost every time I, I take the counsel, you know, I'm coachable. It was a grand experiment. I'd never been a CEO before. I've been a president. And when I was that president at Madison Square Garden, the only thing I could think about was, I don't want anybody messing with the culture. Like, my, you know, I had a couple bosses there and, you know, it was, di- it was different. Like I, I wanted is this to be shaped and be the best place to work in the world. That, that's what was my goal. Like, think about that as an aspiration. By the way, was it? No, I'm sure there are better places to work in the world. For me, it was, it was the best. But like aspirationally, you walked in. It's almost like, you know, you go to Disney and you see all these people smiling. You're like, how are they smiling? It's August. You know, it's hot. They're in those terrible outfits. The food's bad, blah, blah, blah. They probably walk two miles to get to their post and they're all happy. It's because they self-select in. Right. You know, at HBSC, we had people self-selecting. I said, like, I am willing to work hard. I am. I have high character. I want to be challenged. I want to be innovative. I want to do things differently. I'm willing to work, but I want to be the best in the world at what I do. I mean, I'm willing to learn. Like all those people start self-selecting in and then, you know, then it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. How rewarding was that for you? Because you brought so many young leaders on, right? How rewarding is it for you? And they, so many have gone on and do incredible things. When, they call, when they call you back and they call you up and say, Hey, Scott, I'm walk, walk me through this. You know, this is a situation I have. And I remember when we did this with HBSC, what, what are your thoughts on this? And, and then watching them in the trajectory, how rewarding is that for you? What's really rewarding is when I call them and say, Hey, I'm dealing with this topic. I need your counsel. That's what's really rewarding. Uh, oh, um, but, you know, I, I, I've been really fortunate. I mean, um, you know, I was thinking about my group at the NBA. It was, you know, Amy Brooks, who's now president of the NBA. Um, Chris Granger is now CEO of Village Sports, runs the Tigers and Red Wings. Chris Hex, president of the Sixers. Tom Glick's president of Carolina Panthers. Dan Reed's president of Facebook Sports Entertainment. I mean, it's kind of like, it's amazing. that was a one little group. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting 10, 10 people, but Don Daniels is our general manager of the Prince Center. I mean, like, it's kind of crazy, you know? Um, my group at the NBA is similar. I'm at uh, Madison Square Garden. And this group is the most talented group I've worked with. I think we have probably like a couple dozen people who run organizations. I mean, think about that. When did you know? I mean, you, you recruit this great talent, you develop it, you retain it as long as you possibly can. When would you know? When was the tell that it was time for them to fly on their own? I mean, some are still there and probably should go. So what I would try to do to keep them is move them out of their core competency into another, another area. So what happens is when you have a really talented organization, it's hard. They, they almost like run into to ceilings. And so I'm trying to break through the ceiling. So one thing you do is try to grow the organization. Easy. Easier. And then the second thing is, you know, this, this, I'll give you an example of a, a young woman, uh, not so young anymore, but uh, Brittany Boyd, who started as a director of guest services. She's now the chief marketing officer for the Sixers, the biggest brand. 
she was guest services at the Prudential Center and then moved up and now we moved her over because like she couldn't grow in her current role. She was running into a robot. You know, Katie O'Reilly uh, is another one who's now our chief revenue officer, came in as a deal maker, moved her to chief marketing officer, then moved her to chief revenue officer. So those are like two examples of people who are in and out of their zones. And I'm just looking for really talented people who are smart, who can lead and manage, uh, who have the gear, who are you know intellectually curious. And then we give them a shot. We have a lot of people doing some big jobs that they're not classically trained in. Um, but when you get up the ladder, it's really not about technical expertise. I mean, you have to have a strategic mindset. You know, you have to understand the strategy. But this is about hiring extraordinary people, building yeah. world-class teams, and somewhat getting out of their way, giving them feedback, holding them accountable, setting goals, all that kind of stuff. And so I want to make sure that that those extraordinary leaders get big opportunities. And it, it, it might not be right down the, the pipe or right down the middle of, of where they grew up in the business. Jill Snodgrass, another one, grew up at, like as a director of service, and now she's running our activation team on the monster yeah. side. So like, we just take great people, extraordinary leaders, and put them in, in roles that matter. Several minutes ago, you said you don't take a lot of time to reflect, right? And you do all this amazing work with all these amazing people, HPSC. You walk away and your daughter and you're going to take this amazing trip to Mozambique. When you got on that plane and wheels up, you're up, you know, you take off. Did you take time to reflect? Did you step and kind of look back a little bit in journal maybe, or talk to your daughter about it or just have conversation? What was that like completely detaching, going and doing this amazing work? And I'd love to talk about the work that you folks did. Yeah. So I, you know, I was with 20 teenagers. So uh, it was me. Uh, Every parent's like, dream, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was me and another uh, mom. So it was a mom and a dad, effectively. And then there were two leaders of the trip who were 24 and 21, Ben and Kylie, who were in charge. And we, we kind of, you know, helped support them. But we were essentially the mom and dad of the trip. And the, the first night, our, our flight gets canceled. And so we're, it's 4 a.m. We're in Newark Airport trying to find a hotel. And so we were up most of the night and got out the next night. So most of us hadn't slept in 48 hours or so. So I slept on the plane, <laughs> good sleep. Um, <laughs> I kind of promised myself one thing and that I was going to be where my feet were. So I was going to be present with my, with my daughter and with this team of, of incredible teenagers from around the country. And, um, and I was going to do my, my reflecting and, and look forward on the way back. I was going to give myself like that flight back. And so that's when I, I did quite a bit of thinking and writing, but you know, it's a, 15 hour flight or so. So I had plenty of time to think and to write, but on the way over there, I, I wanted to be 100% engaged with the young people. And that was fun. I love teenagers. I do. I love, I love young people just in general, even, even the, when they get up in their, their mid twenties, like I love that age from like 16, 17 to 25. I just, I love their hopes and their dreams and their struggles and the light in their eyes and the will and the questioning I, and to get a chance to be hands-on with 20 of them for three weeks is a, it's a gift I'll, I'll always appreciate. And I, I think just get a quick little, we were doing a, we did these devotionals every night where the young people would get up and, and teach a lesson, oftentimes faith-based, sometimes not, but mostly faith-based. And whenever there was a lull in the deal, I would get up and I would teach. And so one of the kids wasn't prepared. So I said, I, I got this one. So I pop up. I said, let's talk about storytelling. I said, I love to tell stories. I said, uh, tell me about the work site. Tell me, I said, I want to learn how we can teach. Are there six or seven lessons we can teach that we learned from the work site today? And by the way, we're building a school. The foreman doesn't speak English, okay? Okay. We have scaffolding made out of tree sticks, okay? And I'm standing on it, the eight feet off the ground thinking like, okay, this is a little wobbly. 
mm-hmm. learning how to plaster. I don't have no skill. <laughs> my daughter's like, dad, you're getting better. Good job. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Anyway, uh, I'm like carrying 120 pound bags of cement thinking like, okay, when's my back going out? You know, where, where, are we, where are the young kids when we need them? So anyway, so I'm, I'm saying, okay, tell me what you saw. And this uh, young woman, Sophie says, um, says, well, Scott, I was, uh, I was on the cement mixing team today. I was like, awesome. I was like, well, tell me what you learned. Tell me what you could teach. She said, well, I was adding water to the cement thinking like, this is a lot like life. And I said, all right, tell me more. She said, well, if I don't add the right amount of water to the cement and keep the water coming, it dries out and it's of no use to us. All right. I said, okay, take it home. She said, well, I've got to say my prayers and read my scriptures. I have to surround myself with really good people. I have to work hard. I have to be open to learning. I have to be a good person. That's my water. And I was like, now that's a lesson I could teach. Right. She's 20 years old. This young guy, Carl's from Utah. He says, I have one, Scott. So uh, Carl, give me a big football player, offensive lineman, high school kid, mm-hmm. 17 or 18. He says, well, you know, I, I was on the wheelbarrow. He's a big star. Anything we needed that needed muscle, he did. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> he'd take that big wheelbarrow cement, roll it on the two by fours and weave it through the site, probably 50 yards. And he said, well, when I was wheelbarrowing today, I thought I need to stay on this path. I was like, okay. He said, well, there's sand on the side. And he said, look, I could roll it to the sand, but it was hard. It was harder. I was like, okay, so what's that path? He said, well, that path is living the right way and making the right decisions. I'm like, how good is that? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I could talk for 45 minutes on that. Right. I said, all right, give me one more. My daughter, Kira, who's a credible, incre- I mean, I'm a doting dad, but this kid's off the charts. I mean, she, she, le- she just leads wherever she goes. It was so cool to see as a dad. I, I said she was like the foreman by, the, by day two of the work side. I'm like, what do you know about construction? Stop telling me what to do with the scaffolding. But she said, well, the scaffolding. She said, I was up there the first day and it was really wobbly. Um, I was up the second day, it was wobbly. She said, third day, I'm like, I am going to oversee when we put together, because we had to take the scaffolding down every day because there were young kids around. I said, all right, so tell me more. She said, well, <clears throat> we had to get the right boards to put on the, on the tree branches and we had to tie the wire, the wire tighter. I was like, okay, so, so what's that about life? So, well, it's just about, about preparation. It's about understanding what your expectations are and then having a feedback cycle to know that you can get better. I'm like, are you kidding? Now, these are 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. And we went on, there were seven of them, seven lessons that day that I would say I, quote, unquote, was teaching that day. But, you know, I'm, I'm in learning mode. I ask questions so I can learn. And I'm literally like, I have my journal. I'm writing them down. I'm like, okay, I'm going to use every one of these. Right. I will give a talk somewhere in my life. I'm going to use every one of these. How cool is and that though? Thought, yeah. I mean, for me, I felt like this overwhelming sense of gratitude, like mm-hmm. all the time. My room smelled like sewage, mm-hmm. sewage. I once brushed my teeth and used the water and like the toilet water came out oh. you know, so, of the sink. I got sick so badly over there that uh, I woke up one evening. I was shaking because I was, uh, had the chills and didn't have the right medication. I was crap. And I had sweated through a sweatshirt. I'd never done that before. Wow. I literally looked up. I thought there was a hole in the roof yeah. and it leaked. Oh. Um, but I took my shirt and my sweatshirt off and it was heavy drenched with sweat. And I just took it up and put the dry shirt on. We walked into houses that didn't have electricity or running water. The school kids, we were right next to where we were building the school. They were learning under a tree. They had four trees. And because they had shade, a little teacher would come out and she had a blackboard. The kids would be sitting dutifully around this tree. And I just felt this overwhelming sense of gratitude. And my big lesson was I, I grew up with my dad telling me like, I would say, dad, it's unfair. Sean got this. Hey, dad, this isn't fair. Mike got a truck. I want a truck. My dad used to look me dead in the eyes, said it a thousand times, Scott, life isn't fair. For the first time in my life in Mozambique, 
Mm. Every freaking day, I was like, life isn't fair. Did you catch yourself at times just pausing and just watching and observing? Yes. And, and, yeah. What was that like? A lot of times on the bus, kids would be, you know, the kids are singing. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> singing, playing games. Yeah. The high school boys, I'm around girls a lot. I'm not around boys a lot. Yeah. Like, they're hilarious, yeah. you know, um, and over the top and funny. And, yeah. But but there was always a lot of commotion. And I, I that's where I did a lot of reflection. I'd be looking out the window, sometimes with a camera in my hand, mm-hmm. and riding on this sandy dirt road for 40 minutes. We got stuck a few times, dips, big dips and turns. And, and I'm looking at the shops, which are made out of like corrugated metal sheets, metal sheets tied together with nothing. I would just shake my head and think about my family, my kids, my friends, my neighborhood. What are we really upset about? We have every advantage in the world. We have access to we have running water. We have hot showers, hot showers. Someone said, what'd you do when you first got home? I was like, I took a hot shower for 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's the first time I've been clean in three weeks. Yeah. What's the second thing you do? I go, I ate three meals right in a row as much as I could. I don't know. I don't know how to articulate it. I would just say like this overwhelming sense of gratitude for being able to grow up in this country. I know this country's not perfect, but I love this country. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I love it. I, I feel appreciative. I feel grateful. I feel like everybody has a chance. And I, and I know there are some areas in this country that are, that are bad. There's some areas in, in Philadelphia that are really rough. I, I would say that they'd be like the four seasons compared to what we, we were handling in Mozambique. And even here, join the military. You can do it. I know it's hard. Like, like I sit in this like beautiful neighborhood, this great house, I have this cool job. And I get it. Like, it, it, it sounds condescending coming from me. I, I understand that. I, I, I grew up with nothing. You know, I, I've seen that, that side of the fence. I just always thought, like, when we didn't have anything, I was like, I'll go into the military. They'll pay for my college. That's what was my mentality growing up. My parents ended up finding some commercial success and pay for my college. What a gift. But I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to go to college. They don't have a chance there. A couple of times we got like pulled over by the military. Once I was, it was just me, a driver and, uh, and the, the mom on the trip. And it was after curfew and we didn't have our passports. And I was literally thinking like, what if they throw us in jail? Mm-hmm. Who's going to come find us? How will they find Like, What am I going to say? I don't speak the language. You know, you think like, you know, we have our civil liberties here. Which sometimes we take for granted, mm-hmm. and sometimes we we you know shake our head at. And I'll, I'll say like, this is the greatest country in the world, bar none. Mm-hmm. Stop. Period. End of sentence. Yeah. And yes, we have some work to do, but man, we should count our blessings every single day for being born in this country. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the things we really struggle with in this country, and it's our own doing, is communication and the way we go about doing it. How was? The communication over there. Obviously, there was a language barrier, but seeing the kids and seeing the teachers and seeing the people, and there had to be a way they communicated, whether it was by eyes, whether it was by body language, whether it was by touch. But I mean, what what was that like? Kids are kids are kids are kids are kids. I mean, I <laughs> so the kids were amazing. They were swarming around the site and the school, and after the work site was when it was our playtime with the kids. It was amazing. They have light in their eyes, and they smile, and they're happy. And they want to play and they want to <laughs> have fun and laugh. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have anything, you don't know anything differently. And so joy becomes what you can make of it. They're jumping off of tires. Those are their toys. They think, you know, the makeshift jump ropes out of like garbage ish. I don't know what it was, but, and so the kids always find a way to play and the kids were really happy and cute yeah. and loving and wanted to have fun and smile. That, that was pretty neat. And I think that's universal. I really do. I think kids are, are born with the joy 
And as parents and as teenagers and as adolescents, we get that cynicism. But when you're a kid, it's just pure joy and happiness. And I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, so you have this amazing trip and you get on the plane, you come home, you're starting to take time to reflect, now preparing for the next step. And I'm not asking what the next step is, but what are some of the things that you're, wherever it is, whoever it's with, will you try to recreate what you built at HBSE? No, I mean, I'll do, I mean, I go back to the teams I've worked with over time, go all the way back to the, to the Eagles and my team there, which was amazing and Hoops TV, mm-hmm. NBA and MSG and HBSC. It's like every place has its own, I don't know, karma, ecosystem, mm-hmm. way of communicating, different language, different mix of people to come together. And, you know, I think, you know, like you coach, so you get the drill. It's like, if you treated every team exactly the same, you'd have exactly zero success. And so you're trying to, to build a team that complements each other and complements your skills with maybe some of the same characteristics, but it'll be an entirely different situation, entirely different. What's really interesting to me is what I thought about on this plane coming back after spending time with these young people was I want to be in a platform where I can hire a lot of young people. And my friends, kids, my nephew, whoever, anybody in their 20s, and I want to work on developing them into extraordinary leaders and then putting them out into the world. I absolutely love that. And can you speak to the notion out there that millennials don't have what it takes to succeed. I totally disagree. I, I, love, t- I, I totally love disagree. Yeah. Can you talk about I, that? I love millennials. Bit? I think I might be a millennial, just not by age. <laughs> and Gen Z's too. Gen Z's get beat up too. I think these two groups have a lot in common. I think they, they're willing to work, mm-hmm. which I love. You remember, you know, I'm a, technically a Gen X. I'm like on the edge of a Gen X. Um, and Gen X got, <clears throat> got hit quite a bit because we didn't work hard. Right. But millennials and Gen Z's, they'll work hard. They're really smart. Uh, they're very connected. They understand how to get information and find information at a, the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. Um, they grew up with their phones, which is a tremendous advantage. They understand their brand and your brand. They're very mission-driven. They want to look at you and see your authentic self. And if you're not authentically, they'll just walk out the door. They have no cars. They have no houses. They have no ties. They're like, yeah, I'm going to just check out. I'm like, but you have no other job? Yeah, this isn't working for me. But you haven't looked for a job. Yeah, I'm good. Like, think of that mentality. Like, I never had that. I was like, oh, I need a job. Okay, I'm not leaving my job. But I don't care. My guy's screaming at me every day. I need a job. But like, I love that, that sense. Now, some of that, all that stuff I said that I love, you know, they're a little entitled. They expect the corner office on day four. Mm -hmm. They expect to be promoted on day two. They're willing to work for it. I love that they see the world. They're global citizens. They don't see people like we see people. They embrace diversity as a competitive, sustainable competitive advantage, which is wonderful. I think we're in good hands. I think the country's in good hands. I think the world's in good hands. I would work with this group all day and twice on Sunday. I really do love them. I think that's so cool. I really do. know. so well said. As we wrap up here, there's one thing I want to make sure we, we get to our listener, because one of the things that I love about you is you are in this, and if you haven't been in it or haven't been around it, it's hard to really grasp the level of cutthroat competitiveness, fast moving, high pressure, high anxiety, sure, high reward if you succeed, high punishment if you fail, you know, business that you were in that professional sports is in, or professional sports is, excuse me. But you have had this ability to stay so humble and, and you know, constantly act with humility. Sure, you compete. Sure, you, you can be tough, right? And you want to you run to the fight and we want to win, but you want to win the right way. And those things aren't mutually exclusive. If it's not mutually exclusive in an industry like that, 
I think it's safe to say it's not mutually exclusive in any industry. How have you been able to do that, to remain so dialed in, so focused, to be where your feet are and remain humble and yet win at an extremely high level? That's nice you say. I would say, like I say every time, people, people, people. It's like David Stern, my, my former boss, who I love and respect. God rest his soul, passed away. Like, I'm not sure his style will work today. Um, like the king, ruler, I know everything. I do everything. You do as I say. And by the way, he was just smarter than everybody, you know? But I, th- I think today's world, you have to set up an organization so that people can make decisions. And you as a leader have to make it okay to, for them to slip and fall on occasion, uh, or you're not going to innovate or try anything different. So I, I, I don't know. I, I think the one, like I said, I go back to like the one common piece has been surround yourself with people who are better, smarter, work harder, more talented, more creative, have better ideas, willing to get in a foxhole with you, willing to debate hardcore issues, are confident enough, strong enough, and that, you know, I, and I've, I've overcome my mistake I made early in my career, which was, I wanted all type A's and it can't. I was running my introverts out left and right. And what I learned recently, the last 10 years, is like, no, the introverts are the smarter ones. They're the ones with all the ideas. Stop putting them on the spot in a meeting. Just check in with them before the meeting and say, hey, can you come up with five ideas to help me with X? I'm going to talk about it. So, I, you know, so you have to move a little bit. You know, I, I don't think one size fits all. I don't think one size fits all managing a team. I don't think one size fits all managing a company. I don't even think one size fits all meaning an individual person because you move and grow and you might need something. You might need a hug on on a day, you know, you might need a kick on another right. and you might need to be pushed and pulled or you might not be coddled sometime. You might be struggling. I say, like, go take a vacation, get out of here. You, know, you need time. You're just grabbing that stick too tight. Chill. I don't know. I think today's leaders, we need to be flexible and malleable and compassionate and understanding. And our jobs are to set the vision, set the strategy help hire the right people, make sure the right people are in place and make sure the culture, because culture, like you don't own the culture and you can't set the culture. Culture, I say next woman up. So like the next woman you hire, she's determined the culture more than I am. Mm-hmm. Like that next person, what does that look like? How's it taste? How's it feel? You know, cultures which you tolerate and what you celebrate. So that's where I can help. But at the end of the day, you're a CEO of a $3 billion business. It's your people. Like they are determining every day how they're dealing with complex issues. Right. And so I, I, I never want to forget. That's a lesson I never want to forget. That's awesome. And it's a great way to end. And Scott, I can't thank you enough. I I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Again, congratulations on an incredible run at HBSC. Congratulations on the book and and for being the person that you are. Thank you, sir. And one thing for you is that who knows when we'll talk next time, but well, it might be interesting and hey, change then. It is. You just stole my thunder. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. You know, whether it's three months, six months, nine months from now, I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about, though. Appreciate you, brother. Anytime. All, right. all right. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to The Athletics of Business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness. 